It's time again for another Bisexual Brunch with Nikki Hodgson, Lewis Oakley and Ashley Byrne. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. We as journalists and activists have always found it very difficult to find people who will openly talk about being bisexual. Just don't think there are enough bi perspectives on bi issues. I feel like we've got to talk about it because we're really comfortable doing that. It can be really intimidating. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. I've always found myself at the mercy of gay and straight advice. You can have a bit of competition to see who's the better bisexual bruncher. This is Bisexual Brunch. Yes, welcome to another Bisexual Brunch. And Nikki's back after apparently moving house. But I'm looking at the screen and I can't actually see anything different. Have you sort of moved a set from one place to another? Are you sort of doing... Is this because you're up here on Sky News and things and you've decided... It was that what you were doing? What What's going on, Nikki? Oh, so it's so confusing. So basically, me and my husband are coming up to the end of our tenancy on the flat that we rent. We decided that uh, we needed to find somewhere else to rent from, like, the 1st of March. So we went on a hideous goose chase across London trying to find a flat that would be ready in, like, what, two weeks? Ten days? <laughs> Um, and then we just, all of a sudden, we looked at loads of places and no, nothing was right. We thought, what are we doing? Okay, we're just going to have to renew for another year. So I thought I was having to move house and I was so stressed. And he loves moving, so he doesn't have any problem with it. And I was just like, please don't make me pack all these books and pack all these clothes. I haven't got time. So we, I've got my way, basically. <laughs> uh, that's always lovely, though, isn't it? I always feel like that, like knowing, like you've looked around and it's like actually we're we're great where we are. That's always nice. Like having a look around, and be like, nah, we're good. Yeah. Also, I was really worried on the show last week, and I was like actually quite grateful we we're in lockdown. I was like, she might ask me to go over there and help her move. <laughs> what? No, I wouldn't inflict that on anybody, Lewis. With the amount of shit I've got in my house, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I moved into this place where I'm now uh, 11, 12 years ago, and there is still a room full of stuff that's never been looked at from the last place I lived at, mainly books and things like that, because yeah. I don't, I will never get rid of books. I always keep books, and it's a nightmare. You just accumulate more and more and more over your lifetime, don't you? I know, I know, and I've got boxes of books that I haven't unpacked, even though I've got bookshelves full of books. I don't know what it is about books, right? Like you, I think it's something, somebody once told me that you have books on bookshelves to remind yourself of how intellectual you used to be because you never go back to read them again, nine times out of 10. Well, I dip so, in and out of them. I dip in and out. Yeah, I'll go I and look for I something. do some of them. But there are, a lot, there are a lot of households, you know, don't have books at all. There are. Which there are loads of people who, they, they, see it as a, they see it as cluttered, don't they? they yeah, think yeah. Well, that was because Marie Kondo, remember, in her uh, tidying up trend, said that books were clutter unless you absolutely loved them and they brought you joy. So this started this huge debate on the internet about how can you consider books to be rubbish? <laughs> have you got lots of books in your house, uh, Lewis? We don't have that many, to be honest. I am very... So what Laura really likes about me is that I'm so minimalist. Like, I don't need anything. Like, I've got my clothes, I've got my products, and I've got my tech. And that's really it. And I have now started this weird collection of like movie replicas, props, 
Um, but that's a discussion for another time. But then she found my bedroom at my nan and granddad's house, which is like a time capsule. And it actually is like, you know, in Friends where Monica's really clean, but then she's got that cupboard where every, she's just kept everything. It was very much like that. She's like, oh my God, you're a fraud. You're not minimalist at all. You just move it all here. So my books are probably there. <laughs> But if you visit my apartment in London, it's like, where's your stuff? Fabulous. Well, I'm definitely not minimalist. I'm all, every, I've got so much stuff. I've got CDs everywhere. I've got videos. <laughs> I won't get rid of anything. And the point, the point is I can't even play the VHSs now. You know what I mean? It's just crazy. But um, and music as well, definitely. I feel as though I need, I still feel, this is old fashioned. I'm a 20th century boy in the 21st century world because I still feel as though I want to physically have something. The internet doesn't do it for me in that sense. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's nice to have a CD or a record or something that you can you can keep and. and I was there, saying know. this to Laura about being a bisexual activist. I was like, it's so digital, and I have like this book um, that's from Joan Rivers, the comedian's life, and it's all of the pieces of paper and stuff that she's like um, accumulated over her whole life, and I was like. I want something like this. I want something on the mantel place that's like, oh, this is when, as an activist, I did this and that. And it's like, I haven't really got anything physical. It's all digital, which makes me sad. I've got the Attitude magazine cover. So I'm like, okay, that can go somewhere when we get a house. But other than that, I'm like, it's such a non-physical, like, there's nothing to hold anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I still prefer, again, 20th century boy and 21st century world, I still prefer to see a, to hold a magazine or to look at a newspaper or look at a book rather than reading something online. I just don't, it doesn't feel right, real to me online. And also the other, the other fact online is, of course, you've got so many bloody adverts everywhere. It's a long, you might be reading a long article, but you've got all that in the way and it's just horrendous. I mean, what, what do you feel, Nikki? Because you're a, you're a, you know, you've written books and things and obviously loads of people just read stuff online now. How does it make you feel as a, as a writer and an author, as it were? Well, it's interesting because obviously if you write and you're published online, your reach is much greater and you'll get comments or emails from people all around the world. But the other week I wrote an article about Bridgerton and my dating book, my history dating book for The Telegraph. And it was in the print version of The Telegraph, which I've never been in before. And I saved the copy and I was so excited to go out in the morning and buy the first edition. And they trailed it on the front and then it was in the arts pages and then the whole article was there. And there's my little byline. And I guess, yeah, I'm like you, Ash, I'm a bit old-fashioned. I was trained in an old-fashioned age as a print journalist. And I still get much, a much bigger thrill from seeing myself in the actual physical newspaper. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I get, I get fed up with all this online. So it's the same with radio and telly, actually. You often see a report online and people will point to me and say, have you seen this? Have you seen that? And it's like, I know they've never watched it or listened to something on the radio or the t- or watched it on the TV. They've just got it from online. And I find, I find that terribly disappointing in a way. Well, first of all, it's disappointing to me as somebody who creates radio and television. But also, um, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, Lewis will probably disagree with this because I know he's very much an online man. But I feel as though we're regressing a bit. We're sort of, everything's focused on the, the, the written word in that very brief context online. And we, you know, this whole world we've built up of communication through through speech and through film and through you know reading and whatever in, in physical books and all that kind of stuff seems to be seems to be. I don't think it'll die out completely, but it does worry me that everything's focused on that what's online kind of thing constantly. What do you think, Lois? Well, I'm gonna shock. I'm gonna completely shock you. Like I agree, uh, but the thing is, I think I've spent a good year or something, kind of like. Um, 
thinking about like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be back in this time period minus the homophobia and racism? Like if we could keep the elements of today, but go back to like, you know, four TV channels and literally it's like front page news that Deirdre Barlow's in jail for weeks. Like, you know, cause, and I think there was something to be said for when there was four TV channels of like, when you were on TV, it was like, this is such a moment. Millions of people are watching, whereas now it's all very diluted and everyone's off having their own conversations. Very hard to really put your finger on what the culture is. But I think maybe it needs to just evolve again. But I think we need to have a really thought out way of doing it where it's like, look, maybe we should go back to more print and and small, you know, just a few TV stations, but then also have these online portals for, you know, pockets of subculture. I don't know. I think there's a happy medium to be had. Um, but like the other, was it the other month I was in the Radio Times because I did that BBC thing and I went out and bought it. I brought the wrong one and, you know, but I would have kept that of like, oh, look, I'm like in the Radio Times. So I'm all for it. And also I, I really stand by Joanna Lumley where she says um, the world's too quick now. So we never really have time, you know, like, you know, Prince Philip is in hospital at the time of recording. Um, and, you know, the, all the articles that they've just jumped out and it's, it's all, all so quick and speculative. And it's like, whoa, like we need time to just relax and think. And I, I really miss the news being once a day. I think that's where we went wrong. The fact that the news happens now quickly and everyone reacts so fast. It's like, actually, let's have a moment. Let's think about it. Give people time to write the articles and come out the next day and then have time to think about that. Because the amount of spelling mistakes you see on, on news sites now, I'm like, it's because you literally have like bash that out in 20 minutes with no thought no i absolutely agree i mean in terms of the tv news i tend to revert still actually to to itv's news because itv only produce three big bulletins a day at lunchtime tea time and then at nighttime with obviously news at 10 which is an iconic program in itself and i still think they deliver far more in those half hours than sky and the bbc do put together because, because they, they have, have time to, to spend, think they have to they have to t- have time to think and they have to really focus on what they're doing and deliver some special stuff you know yeah um, it's so yeah what you call it's what we call reflective not reactive in the business yeah exactly uh, exactly and, it, and it's a lot better and also you know the itv and IT, itn as it always as the actual production company of course is called they're sort of such caliber of people who've been doing it for so long they really are very very good journalists and and really well you know well respected and compared to the BBC and Sky they've got so few people doing it all and I think it's amazing what they turn out you know so I think it's I think it's really good but anyway <laughs> we digress <laughs> but it's uh, it's great to hear our, our I'm sure everyone's there waiting waiting Beth waiting for our take on the world as it were every week <laughs> when we, or whenever we manage to do bisexual brunch which which hasn't been weekly recently um, sometimes it will be sometimes it won't be by the way it just depends on our on our workload really and whether Nikki decides she's got to move house again or not we you know thank God I'm not so we all thought it was part of a ruse to get your dog. Like, we were speculating what the reason well, was. It was. This was part of the driving reason. But, you know, I've basically just started a new job this week as well. So it's, I'm way too busy. I can't move house and get a dog and do a bunch of stuff. So I need to focus on the job first. Mm. Dog's going to have to wait. Absolutely. Right, let's move on then. Um, before we talk about our main topic this week, um, I just want to say thank you to quite a few people who have been in touch recently. A, saying how wonderful it is to have bisexual brunch and how they're enjoying it and saying some lovely things about it. Uh, but also, again, the amount of people who are contacting us with their own personal stories. Some people contacting us and saying they 
you know, they, they don't feel comfortable sharing their personal stories publicly. Um, that's okay. And we obviously we'd we love it if they want to and, and we'd love to share their stories. But also there's quite a few people who have contacted us saying, you know, they're they're very nervous about it. Um, but they see us as a as a bit of a you know a lifeline. They like the fact that we're talking about bisexuality. Um, you know, we've had one guy, I think he was in his mid-50s, Lewis. I think I sent that to you to have a read of. He was saying, you know, he he really is scared of letting his wife know that he's uh He's bisexual, you know, and that's, uh, I think he's been with her for like 20 odd years or something like that. I mean, that's a, it's an awful secret to have, isn't it, for such a long time to be holding that within you and not be able to be open about it. But his take is, is that she'll, you know, she'll go mad if, uh, if he reveals it, you know, it's sort of, um, I know you've had a lot of these, a lot of these over the years, Lewis, um, but it, it, it sort of, it, it's not, it doesn't seem to be getting any, any better in a way there seems to be you know I mean, obviously we're doing this so we're, we're we're increasing the interest and the talk about it but what i mean is that doesn't seem to be have been a massive progression to sort of for people to you know despite all the liberal attitudes in certain areas for people to be able to come out and to freely express themselves oh a hundred percent it's probably i've always said it's the main email i get it's from married men like how do i come out to my wife and it's a sad situation it's sad that they've got there it's sad that they are now feeling like they can't um, be honest with, with, with the person. And especially, I think it's probably, it's strange, right? Because it's usually older people. So you've got to think like they probably got into relationships when the world was different and now the world's kind of changed. And so they are kind of in this place of like, okay, well, maybe now it's not a big deal. Maybe now I can just be honest, but actually then sometimes realizing you can't be. And there's a lot to be said, probably Nikki, you have said a lot of this is like, changing the dynamics of your relationship in you know it's a lot easier to kind of meet two like-minded people in the beginning and say what well, this is me this is me this is how us together work but to do it 20 years into a marriage um and to also not know what you want so you might just want i just want to tell her but it's not going to change anything it might be i want to tell her and i, I want to experiment a little bit or whatever it is but not a lot of the people I speak to aren't really sure. They just said, well, I, I just wanted to know. And, and then we'll kind of see what happens. Um, it's a tough one. It's such a tough one. I don't think we've got a correct formula yet, nor will we ever really. I, I don't know. I just hope it gets better with time. I think one of the problems is that we still treat marriage as the end point of a relationship and as a kind of stasis. And the reality is, I think it's Alan de Botton who says something like, you will marry the wrong person, meaning the person you meet and marry won't be the same person in three years' time, 10 years' time, 20 years' time. And if you don't expect to grow with them and for them to ask for different things and want different things and give them bandwidth to ask for different things, then you end up flatlining. So I, if, if we can change our attitude to marriage generally, which is increasingly what we are doing, you know, Psychologists are talking about marriage differently. It's starting to seep through, only just, but it's, it's starting to seep through into kind of new relationship fixing apps that are out there. If that happens, then people will start to do a more ready and constant assessment. And I think that will improve people's ability to come out. Oh, I like that. I'm going to write that down. You will marry the wrong person. I'm going to tell Laura this afterwards. <laughs> you should try out one of these new apps then. Maybe we could follow you trying out a new app. <laughs> anyway, um, the question this week um, is, could we all be nicer to each other? Um, research has been carried out at Yale University in the United States into um, inter-minority stress and prejudice within the LGBTQI 
community, mainly focused on gay and bisexual men. We'll talk about this um, in a moment, but I've been talking to Dr. Kirsty Clark all about it. You're listening to the Bisexual Brunch Podcast. Dr. Kirsty Clark uh, joins us to talk about um, a study uh, she's been carrying out uh, into uh, the LGBTQI community and how um, that affects uh, mental health. Um, first of all, uh, Kirsty, lovely to talk to you. Tell us a little bit about the background to this. Where did the idea come from and why did you decide to do this research? Yeah, so this study is actually really interesting because it it actually emerged organically from another study. Um, so my advisor, Dr. John Pachinkas, who's a an associate professor at the Yale School of Public Health, had carried out interviews with 49 gay and bisexual men in the Northeast um, U.S., about their experiences with stress, with health, with coping. And in those interviews, over and over again, we saw the emergence of folks bringing up experiences of stress from within the gay community. So, you know, we were definitely really expecting folks to talk about homophobia, stigma, that they definitely did, but also hearing about, um, you know, stress from other gay and bisexual men around body image, around um, adhering to the norms of the gay community, around, you know, just stressors they're experiencing in their day-to-day lives. And that actually, um, you know, led Dr. Pachinkas and then me, I was really glad to be on board this study with thinking about, well, let's figure out how to measure this and let's figure out what this stress um, exactly is and how it affects gay and bisexual men's mental health. And the study you did was quite big, wasn't it? Quite a lot of people you included in this. Yes. So, um, Yes, it was a very large study and it was conducted actually, you know, from beginning to end over the course of over five years. Um, So it was a primary study uh, with about a thousand gay and bisexual men. And then we conducted a series of secondary, smaller experimental studies to really test this this new theory that was emerging um, or that we developed of intra-minority gay community stress. But I think probably for you all, um, the the most important study is the, the first really large one where we developed a scale to assess um, intra-minority community stress and showed um, that this really is a source of stress in gay and bisexual men's lives and that it's associated with, you know, adverse mental health, including symptoms of depression and anxiety and somatic symptoms of, you know, feeling um, poor health in your body. I'll ask you in a moment about some specifics and things that you discovered. Um, but speaking personally, as somebody who's a, a bisexual man and experienced the LGBT scene, as it were, over many, many years, um, none of this is a surprise to me. Um, mm. What is a surprise, or not a surprise, but shocking in a way, is that it's taken us a long time to get to this point where a study has been um, carried out. Um, I think sometimes um, the community probably doesn't want to address these issues um, mm. because obviously there is an impression, isn't there, outside that LGBTQ and I are all together in a loving community. They all get on with each other and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. 
and and in reality, there's a lot of pressure out there on um, young gay men in particular, but also older older gay men and, and bisexual men too, to conform. That's what the issue tends to be. I find that um, you got this idea of acceptance and people accepting you for your sexuality, but if you don't necessarily conform to a particular type or or, or a particular way of life, um, then it, you you can be ostracised within a minority. And that has always baffled me, really. I know it exists. I know it exists in, in other communities, not just sex, you know, around sexuality, but around race and all sorts of things. But I find it quite astonishing sometimes. You think, why is this? I'm not going to ask you why it is for a second. We can talk about that and speculate on that later. But tell us a little bit about the things that you discovered the interesting things that you found out what was what were the what were the triggers what were the things that were causing people the most problems yeah so so really this idea of intra-minority community stress that we found is driven by these status pressures in gay and bisexual men's um, communities and these you know, status was operationalized as masculinity, attractiveness, and wealth. So, you know, being more masculine, um, being more conventionally attractive, and having more wealth, those three things together were really seen as these quote-unquote ideals within um, the gay community. And so, especially for those men who, you know, they perceived that they did not meet that, um, you know, that norm that high status the the stress of that was just you know especially taxing um for those folks so um i think that was a really interesting part of it of, of really you know the focal of this being this high status environment and you know i think a really interesting thing about this as well as um you know, we think that this is generated in in part because it's an environment where, um, you know, a, a minority group is kind of uh, pushed into this pressure cooker, kind of like you said, and folks, um, gay and bisexual men have to find their social and sexual partners um, from other gay gay men especially um, for, you know, folks who identify as gay. And that in particular can be super taxing um, on mental health if you don't meet that um, high status ideal that we saw as being super important. And there's also, it's not just about the, you know, the um, people's looks and uh, all that kind of thing, is it? It's also about um, the, the nature, I suppose, of... Um, sexual relationships among men in a way um i think women are different in a way in some respects in sense of probably take more time to meet somebody all that kind of thing but but you know if we're being honest uh sexual relationships around men not all men but quite a lot of men um both straight and gay and bisexual all, all, all of them are quite are quite charged around sex around the, the issue of sex aren't they so it's all about performance in terms of being able to uh, meet people, find people, uh, have a you know a, a one night stand, whatever it may be, and and being able to keep that up and keep going and and sort of you know um, and that puts a lot of pressure on people because there are lots of gay and bisexual men who aren't really into that um, and 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 do want to you know um, find a loving partner, settle down, all that kind of stuff and. Um, often the, the 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 gay and bisexual scene was well, not really a bisexual scene, but the gay scene as a whole 
is quite cruel, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, um, people will have a, a sexual liaison and then the next day will forget about it and not even maybe sp speak to the person in the street once if they see them kind of thing. There's all It's very cold, isn't it? Do you know where I'm coming from? It's a very cold environment that sort of, it, you know, you're expected to act a certain way and, and to not be hurt by it. And actually, um, people can't help being hurt. Most people are hurt by it. I used to find it, when I used to go out, I used to find it really lonely. You'd meet people, you'd be having a great time, all the rest of it. And then, um, yeah, you might go out and meet somebody. And then the next day, that was it, emptiness again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that loneliness because we definitely heard that from from the men, you know, from whom this theory initially emerged, talking about their experiences, just like experiences that that you mention. And, you know, I think it's interesting, something that I that I haven't specifically mentioned is is we kind of found that there's four components to this idea of of gay community stress. And one of them is the gay community's focus on sex. Um, the other three were the focus on status, um, but also focus on competition and exclusion of diversity. So, um, you know, excluding racial and ethnic minority uh, gay and bisexual men who experience racism from within the gay community. But also, like you said, um, you know, one of the the loci of this was really this focus on on sex and you know hypersexual environment, and that we found was particularly taxing for men who were not in a relationship. So men who were single, who were potentially the ones that are you know going out to clubs or on grinder or whatnot, and and experiencing that kind of rejection over and over again. Um, and, and, you know, just like the other pieces of it was especially taxing for those men who perceived themselves as being um, lower status or not meeting those ideals of the gay community. I want to talk to you in a moment specifically about bisexuality and whether you found anything out uh, or anything was reflected in that. But before mm -hmm. we do, let's talk a little bit about the, 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 the image side of things, the, you know, the looks, the image, the different types, because whenever you go into a you know a gay bar or whatever it may be you are you tend to be um categorized as either a you know a, a twink or a bear or you know <laughs> you, you, you know, if you don't fit into one of these different categories you, you, it's very difficult sometimes to fit in i mean not always to be fair i mean you know there are people who can who can manage it you know once you get used to it you can um you know and you, you if you're um if you're fairly mature, then that's fine. But what tends to happen is that people, um, I find, are thrust into the gay scene in some way, shape or form. Either they come out, you know, at a um, fairly young age or whatever it may be, and they have to suddenly navigate that. Or they come out much later in life and they, um, they have that sort of air of, you know, if somebody comes out, so maybe somebody's been married and then decide actually realizes they're actually gay or or bisexual or whatever, and they go onto the scene and they've got this whole thing of sort of reliving their youth again, if you know what I mean. And they've got to try and and fit into this image. And I've 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 seen people change overnight from being one particular kind of person to another kind of person, mm -hmm. uh, and it's quite scary, really. Um, I mean, it's funny as well in some respects, but at the same time, you know, you wonder what that's doing to people. So, what about that image thing? You know, the thing of what you look like. You know, how how big an issue is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, 
beyond even our research, other research looking at body image among gay and bisexual men has found that these image ideals are super important and are, um, you know, particularly taxing on mental health. Um, and, and we found that, you know, when we initially um, reviewed those interviews that we had done from from which this this theory really emerged, we found that, you know, in terms of themes that kept showing up, body image, um, you know, hyper masculinity in terms of, of what you looked like, um, pressure to fit in, and then and then also folks specifically mentioning, you know, those categories you just did in terms of, um, you know, am I a twink? Am I a jock? Which which kind of category do I fit into? And this real parsing of of people um, into, you know kind of being viewed as sexual objects rather than being viewed as, you know, whole humans, I think is what um, a lot of folks were really portraying um, when they talked about how they how they felt. Talking about the sexual side of things, does the issue in terms of pressure come up around, because there's this hypersexualization, as you say, and does the issue, and there's a reason for that, I know, in terms of oppression and all sorts of things to an extent, but does the issue of uh, people's roles sexually come up as well because I often feel that gay gay men and bisexual men feel pressure in that area as well. You know, obviously, you know, um, sexual, you know, sex between uh, between men doesn't have to include certain things, but um, mm-hmm. there's a there's a there's a general tendency to think that it has to, isn't there? And uh, there's a pressure for on that side. Did that come out at all? So we didn't hear um, that specifically in terms of folks talking about. Um, you know, their sexual role, their sexual positioning role specifically. Um, However, you know, we do see that there's still heterosexism in terms of um, the view of, um, you know, who's who oftentimes in in, um, relationships with two men. And so, you know, I think that this idea of femininity can play into that, where oftentimes folks who are seen as um, femme or, you know, potentially maybe one sexual position in a relationship are then, you know, ostracized or they experience more of this gay community stress um, than folks who are seen as this more, you know, honestly, heterosexist ideal of, of masculinity um, in the relationship. Yeah, it's the, it's the male dominance of the world again, isn't it, that comes in there in terms of how people think. Um, when it comes to bisexuality then, obviously there's a, you know, a lot of people out there are bisexual. Bisexual men often can't be open about it and find it really hard to forge relationships in a, if they're open with a, with gay men sometimes because a lot of gay men some I've had gay men say to me bisexuality doesn't exist it's not real mm-hmm. kind of thing you know what did you find on that because you did quite a big study so did you manage to speak to a fair amount of bisexual men yeah so we did so i think in this study um about 15% somewhere around there of the sample um, identified as bisexual. And we did have a large number of participants. And so we did look at um, sexual orientation differences and gay community stress specifically. And what we found was that actually bisexual men reported experiencing slightly lower gay community stress than um, men who identified as gay. And so what we think um, this is due to is that it might be that bisexual men are, you know, 
because of their position as being folks who may be in a relationship with a woman, for instance, um, might be less embedded in in the mainstream gay community where these pressures are so magnified. Um, but like you said, we know that bisexual men and women um, experience this sort of quote unquote double discrimination from, you know, the heterosexual world and from within the gay community. Um, I think it might look a little different than gay community stress specifically, but definitely identity and validation, um, you know, stereotypes of what bisexuality is that are promoted by, you know, heterosexuals and, you know, oftentimes um, by other folks within the gay community as well. And we know that that influences um, bisexual men and women's mental health and is perhaps due to, is perhaps, you know, explains some of why we know that bisexual folks have um, poorer mental health as a group than either heterosexuals or, um, you know, monosexuals, so gay or lesbian identified folks. But in terms of gay community stress specifically, we actually found that bisexual men might be um, a little bit protected from that because they may not be as embedded in the gay community. Yeah, I think um, sometimes a lot of bisexual people uh, taste the gay scene for a while. And um, because of all the different issues that come up and prejudices and stress that comes up in terms of uh, gay men accepting their bisexuality and all those kind of things i think sometimes they 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 back off and and um basically don't uh, end up spending a lot of time within um the you know gay bars and things like that it's not the same for everybody some people navigate it and get used to it and don't have a problem with it and you know have have, have gay friends and and uh, are fine um, but I think there are people, bisexual people, who feel very, very um, isolated by elements of attitudes within um, the gay scene. Now, over the years, um, there's been a bit more of an acceptance, hasn't there, of um, gay men in certain areas of life. Um, has um, um, prejudices has changed? Um, obviously it still exists but as um, gay men have become more accepted uh, there tends to be you know um, more welcoming of them uh, in terms of um, uh, involvement in different things and I think they've probably gained some kind of status over time and I detect that there might be a pressure there to conform for other uh, gay men to have that status and and that pressure to be put on both uh, you know uh, gay men as individuals and obviously bisexual men as well and that, that ideal to sort of achieve kind of thing you were talking about status um in this survey how did that um play out so what we did was hear from folks who are experiencing gay community stress um i don't know you know what super high achieving um, gay or bisexual men, um, you know, if there's any snobbery in terms of, you know, you should be achieving as much as me. I think it's really more about thinking about status differentials and, and yeah, that there is this, you know, whether it's not an, whether it's like an individual being like, I'm better than you or, or, or whatnot, I can't say that, but definitely this sort of um, community norm or ideal that the the quote-unquote mainstream gay community is just like you said is this super high achieving super um, you know fit working out um, 
uh, you know, just Adonis. And, and so for guys that, you know, feel like they're not meeting that or might be seeing all these super high achieving, um, guys in the community, that's, you know, really that, that source of stress. So tell us a little bit more about what this stress and prejudice leads to. And, um, also why do you think that we get this into, minority stress where does it come from yeah so i mean to answer your first question in our study we looked at um, the outcome being depression anxiety and somatic symptoms so um you know this idea of of poor mental health and internalizing um, mental health problems and and what we found is that not only is gay community stress um you know, is there an association with poor mental health among gay and bisexual men, but that even in the context of minority stress, so even when we added to our statistical models variables like um, discrimination or internalized homonegativity, even when we were controlling for those things, gay community stress was still predictive of gay and bisexual men's poor um, depression, anxiety, and somatic symptoms. Um, so this is telling us that you know gay community stress has has a large impact on gay and bisexual men's mental health, and that even for those folks who might be experiencing stress from um, the heterosexual world and might be experiencing homonegativity within their own community, if they're experiencing stress, then then that's even more taxing on mental health. So so um, so yeah. So I think that's you know in terms of thinking about mental health, that's one piece of it. And then the question of of why um, this is a phenomenon. I mean, I I do want to say that we know that. Um, the gay community is also a place where folks find um, support. It's a creative environment. It's a place where um, we know that gay community connectedness and support from other peers is associated with um, improved mental health. So, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that the quote unquote gay community is a place where everyone's infighting and it's it's the super, um, you know, taxing environment. But I think specific aspects of it, we do need to raise awareness about that that these intense status pressures um, can really can really detract from mental health can, and can detract from um, you know those really positive aspects of the gay community that we know can promote uh, you know improved mental health, especially among gay and bisexual men who might have been rejected from their family, from their heterosexual peers. Um, if they can find support within the gay community, then then we know that that's that's um, leads to improvement in mental health. Um, but I think it's, you know, like I said a little earlier, you know, we don't know for sure the exact reason for why gay community stress exists. But, you know, we can think about the fact that gay and bisexual men historically face um, great homonegativity and discrimination. And so, you know, have a uh, minority community where it's you know, men that are seeking social and sexual partners from the same pool. And so that kind of leads to this um, pressure cooker environment where, you know, it's this sort of like dog eat dog environment um, where um, these status ideals are really promoted and promoted and promoted and can lead to men who are of lower um, quote unquote status um, feeling left out or being rejected um, by other other gay and bisexual men. So I think, you know, 
really raising awareness of this um, and and promoting those supportive environments um, is the way that we try to, um, you know, uh, uh, get through this and, and try to help gay and bisexual men who might be experiencing that stress from within the community. So what other research uh, did you do? I mean, is there um, any correlations between uh, the whole area of um, uh, people experiencing stress and risks in terms of sexual health and things like that and any other areas that you uh, you looked into? So um, we did do a follow-up study looking at the association between gay community stress and um, HIV sexual risk-taking behavior, and we found a similar association such that those men who were experiencing more gay community stress also engaged in more um, in riskier um, sexual behavior. Um, so and then in terms of other follow-ups, you know, I think that it's just trying to integrate this more into our current studies and really trying to raise awareness of this as um, a phenomenon in the gay community and then thinking about how we might target this in, in um, uh, sexual minority affirmative mental health treatments and how um, mental health professionals might talk about these um, topics with gay men and, you know, not just assuming that the only source of stress in gay men's lives is um, homophobia, but also thinking about, well, what's going on, you know, within the community. So I think really moving into um, how can we actually integrate this into therapy and into mental health treatment is the next step. And then what about bisexual research generally? Uh, I mean, you've done some of it here, but there needs to be a lot more done, doesn't there, in terms of the bisexual experience? Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, I mean, I'm certainly interested in, and I know many of my colleagues are, um, it, there needs to be more research specific to bisexuals and bisexual experience um, because there just isn't enough. And like you said, there isn't this quote unquote bisexual community. So thinking about how um, bisexual folks' um, lives look like in the day to day and how um, their social networks and kind of this you know, oftentimes bordering the gay community and the quote unquote straight community um, and how that uh, sort of border identity specifically um, can affect mental health, I think is a super important uh, uh, future research step. Well, Kirsty, uh, it's very interesting uh, to hear uh, everything you have to say. Um, please uh, do keep in touch and let us know uh, how your research progresses and, uh, and what you do with it as well. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was a great discussion. Dr. Kirsty Clark there, and we'll discuss what uh, Kirsty had to say uh, between ourselves, Lewis, me and Nikki, in just a moment after this break. Bisexual Brunch is produced with love by MIM. And if you like what we do, why not support us on Patreon? Visit patreon.com forward slash bisexual brunch. Thank you. I am a journalist and broadcaster and I'm 37 years old. I live in London with my husband. I'm originally from West Yorkshire. About five years ago, I had a single episode of psychosis which led to suicidal ideation. I'm Devon Rees and this is Life Matters. Our very own Nikki opens up to the new groundbreaking Life Matters podcast. Now that I'm older and I look back, I think in my teens, I was beginning to realise that I was bisexual, but I couldn't put a name to it. There were definitely relationships that I had with girls growing up that were more than just friendships, but I couldn't really put my finger on what they were. On top of all this angst, all this pressure that I was under, you know, to perform 
I wasn't really able to be myself. I certainly felt like I can't live like this anymore. Our aim with these shows is to discuss solutions and raise awareness of very important issues which touches many of us. This is Life Matters with actor Dovan Rees. Listen within your podcast provider by searching for Life Matters and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. Only on Distinct Nostalgia. When I ran out of children's books, I used to read from Woman's Own. Who knew a four-year-old would be gripped by an article on cross-stitch? We're uniting the ages with Generation Games, a series of comedy and drama monologues and duologues coming exclusively to Distinct Nostalgia. Stories exploring connections, friendships, and relationships between people across different age groups, beginning with Missing You, starring June Brown and Sam Barnard. Mum thinks I need protecting, but I need protecting from love. Pity that social worker of his can't do something useful for a change. Contact the noise abatement lot. Put in a complaint. I like her, I said, and then silence. What's the problem? I asked. They'll take advantage of you, Mum warned. Missing You by Richard Verjet with the legendary June Brown only on Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. Do you want a cup of tea? I'll have half a cup. And that caught on. Yeah, that became a kind of catchphrase, I think. It was the hilarious film of 1999. It wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or colour. It was as simple as... An art student who thinks he's all free and easy, creating a model of a vagina and showing it to his mum and thinking that that's going to be okay. East is East by Ayub Khan Din broke new ground by portraying a relationship between a British woman and her Asian husband and their mixed-race family growing up in Salford in the early 1970s. A clash of cultures and generations ensues. Oh, frig off and wash your bastard curtains, you dirty cow. And I swear to God, that's one of the best lines I've ever had to say in my life. But the film had a serious side too, tackling both racism and domestic violence. I threw myself and put all my physical strength into trying to stop him, and I couldn't. In Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because it's showing what life is like for us now. A series of special interviews with Linda Bassett, Leslie Nickel and Chris Bisson. It was a great script and it was a timely thing to tell because it hadn't been told before. They've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time to give you an authentic feel of what it was like. This series of special interviews is available now at distinctnostalgia.com. You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. Okay, so that was Dr. Kirsty Clark there talking to us before the break about um, the research that she's been carrying out for quite a long time with her colleagues at Yale University into inter-minority um, stress and prejudice that exists within the LGBTQI community. Now, I don't know about you, um, I've wondered about this for a long, long time, and I've often thought, People are missing something here. There isn't. We 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 often hear stories and talk about mental health among LGBTQI people, and it often is focused around the issue of um, homophobia, biphobia, etc. And obviously, those things exist even within the community itself. I know that. Um, 
But very few people talk about the fact that here we have all these people put together in one area in a in a you know a bar or whatever it may be a community group or um you know reacting to an app or whatever it may be um and i suppose we expect or we think and i suppose the mainstream uh, impression is i suppose in the straight world will be oh all these lgbtqi people are all together and all getting on and they're all very nice and nice to each other because they understand each other and all the rest of it but that is further from the truth isn't it a long long way from the truth i came out um in the late 80s early 90s so granted that's quite a long time ago but it was really really hard to navigate the so-called scene and I did think that it would be welcoming and that people would be nice and actually on my first encounters with it um, it was directly the opposite and it took a long time to actually get in there and fit in and talk to people and to feel welcomed as it were Um, so I think personally um, we could be much nicer to each other. What do you think, Lewis? Yeah, this whole topic is so loaded, to be honest, and there are so many different layers to it. I mean, you add social media to it now and it's madness. I mean, I guess the thing is, are we wrong for expecting everyone to be nice? You know, just because we share a sexuality, do we have to love each other and everything? I mean, I would hope yes, but uh, maybe that's being a little bit too optimistic about the whole thing. I think also, you know, it's it's a different culture to any other culture, right? Because, you know, say if you were, you know, I'm part Jamaican, so there's obviously that Jamaican culture, but it's not built on finding love, really. It's built on, it's built on different things. Whereas the LGBT culture is really, I guess, built on acceptance of yourself, um, but also the idea that, you know, this is, this is your pool of people to date also. Um, so I think it's quite tricky. Um, and I also think it, it, I can see it being so stressful because, you know, in many situations you feel maybe ostracized from the straight community or unfortunately you've been disowned by the straight community. Then it's like, well, the LGBT is like the last community for me because of who I am. And then if you find stigma and, and you know, nasty things there, then you then it really is distressing. I can see why why the, the mental health figures are so high for it. I think the issue for me is it's just that whole issue of, of just being you're, you're isolated anyway, being LGBTQI or whatever. Um, so there's an isolation already there, and you're you're going out of your way to try and find some connection and some acceptance, and actually, you you end up being even more lonely sometimes because there are so many little pockets of people who think in certain ways, and you, you know, every it, it, it's it's really strange. I mean, just going back to the whole dating thing. Uh, when it comes to dating, you know, I've said this in previous weeks that you might meet somebody and have a one night stand and whatever. And, and then the person's ability afterwards to even carry on communicating with you um, is I always found really difficult. You know, you don't necessarily want to go and have a relationship with them, but at least say hello in the street or something. You know, I always found that really, really hard. Um, but I'm sure that probably exists in the, in the straight world as well to an extent. Um, but then when it comes to things like, um, you know, uh, in my day it was Gaydar, now it's Grinder and all the rest of it. Um, the whole thing of people not understanding that everyone is different and comes from a different background. So it might be, for example, you don't want to plaster Gaydar or Grinder or whatever it may be with all your pictures um, because you're a bit private and you don't feel comfortable about it and all the rest of it. But people will give you a lot of hell about that because as far as they're concerned, they're not going to talk to you unless you've got a picture. Well, you might actually want to talk to them after a while, you know, want to talk to them for a while and then 
send a picture when you feel as though you can trust them or whatever it may be. So I feel as though people don't 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 really give a thought to where people are coming from. They just expect everyone to have a particular ideal and a particular set thing. And you get these things, don't you? On, I mean, we don't want to talk completely about dating apps and we'll, we'll do a dating thing at some point in the future. But there's all these demands. Nobody over such and such. Nobody under such and such. Don't talk to me if you've, you know, if you're this, that and the other kind of thing. It's like, oh, my God, you know, um, it, I think, I don't know, I think I think, I think, think we can te- be terribly cruel to each other, actually. I actually have a question for Nikki on it. Like, is there something in the stress of making yourself attractive to men? Because I guess it's kind of a weird role reversal, right? Where obviously women have this stress of, or, or maybe some of them don't, but about... Um, making themselves attractive to men and dealing with that. Whereas in the in the gay and bisexual space, men are taking that on too and, and worrying about how they're being perceived and things like that. So I kind of wanted to hear Nikki's thoughts on, um, you know, A, you know, is there a stress associated with making yourself attracted to men? And then B, are gay relationships just by default trying to base themselves off of straight relationships, which maybe doesn't work for two men? Okay, so I would say as a woman... I've wasted a lot of my life caring about what men think about my appearance and trying to appeal to men's desires, as a, especially as a late teenager, as a 20-something. Now at this age, I don't care. I mean, I still want to look good, but I look good for me. I wear the things I want to wear. If they're not considered sexy by men, I don't care. That may also be because I'm married, so I've got a certain amount of bandwidth now to do exactly what I want. I still want to look attractive for my husband. I still want him to fancy me. But he knows that he can't dictate what I wear, and he'd never try to, right? So, you know, that's all good. But the thing that I would say as a bi woman is if you have a particularly heteronormative way of being bi as a woman then it's a double bind because you're trying to look sexy for men and sexy for other women. And it's really stressful. It's like ultra stressful. Whereas I think a lot of bi women date lesbians because they think they just have a different perception of what attractive is and that they get a bit of a break from it. So I think it's actually more complicated if you're a bi woman. Do you think, I mean, obviously everyone's attracted to to different things, but what do you think, like, if you were stereotyping the differences are in what men look for versus what lesbian women look for in a, in a woman? Well, okay. So, again, it depends where you are in the world. When I was in San Francisco and LA being bi, the bi and lesbian women there had extremely high standards of beauty for their partners because California, you know, everybody has plastic surgery every single week. It's, I mean, like, there, there's, you get, wherever you go to, a coffee, a drinks party, whatever, people are talking about what work they're going to get done. And that affects the bi and lesbian culture. Now, they might have a slightly different standard of beauty, but if they want androgynous beauty, you've got to be really chiseled, you've got to be really angular, you've got to be super toned, you know? Whereas I feel like in Britain, we're a little bit more relaxed about people's physiques, a little bit more, not ho- not hugely, but a little bit more. So we'll let people not have an entirely flat stomach in the lesbian or bi community, and it doesn't matter to us. And I do think that when women, women are being kind to other women, they are more appreciative of their foibles because they have them themselves, right? So they are more likely to say, well, it doesn't really matter if you're not a perfect size 10 or whatever, or if you have a bit more weight on this body part. Whereas for men, they're still consuming a lot of media images, some porn, where there's an almost impossible standard of female beauty they're being fed on a daily basis. So no wonder they expect that in the partner's they meet. You know, I don't blame men for having certain expectations of women's physical beauty because they're being fed 
constantly uh, a series of images which is kind of uh, cultivating in them a very set standard of beauty and it's hard for them to break out of that. Well, I think in the gay and bisexual world, if you're dating uh, other men, men dating men, uh, I don't think there is that um, sort of relaxed, sort of uh, intolerant, easygoing attitude. I think generally there is an attitude that they want the perfect they want the perfect person. And I sometimes think that that is part of the reason why a lot of um, people who are seeking other men to date and settle down with don't settle down that quickly sometimes because they are searching, searching that's sorry, they are trying to find that perfect body, that perfect, you know, they, they'd rather keep going out and trying to find the next best one, you know what I mean? I think that, and I think that's a, a great source of, of of, um, of of mental health problems and, and 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 whatever, and also you know you've got this thing certainly in the LGBT scene whereby you're you're automatically sort of categorised in different ways, whether you like it or not. You know you'll walk into a bar or wherever it may be, and and you know you'll be thought of as a a bear or a twink or a a jock or whatever it may be. You you know oh such such and such over there, and there's also there's there's also a lot of ageism as well. So you've got ageism on both ends. You've got um, very, you know, experienced um, gay and bisexual men who are comfortable with the scene, as it were, who will have a go at younger ones. Do you know what I mean? In the sense of they'll be they'll be cheeky to them, they'll be sarcastic with them, they'll make them feel small. That happens a hell of a lot. Um, you get it through drag queen. I mean, a lot of drag queens are fantastic. They don't mean any of it. But I was watching the other night, Beautiful Thing. Uh, by Jonathan Harvey, which is a fantastic coming-of-age uh, gay film, which was shown on Film 4 the other day. I'm hoping to do a reunion, actually, for our other podcast, Distinct Nostalgia, with the original cast. Um, but there's one bit where the two lads who live next door to each other have realised they're gay, and they go to a gay bar. And the um, they walk in, and the... the the um, the drag queen, of course, picks on them straight away as, uh, you know, calling them chickens and all the rest of it. I want some chicken tonight and all this kind of thing. I mean, they, they you know, the, the story was that they they lapped it up and they were, you know, they, they, they enjoyed the fun of it all. But that can be extremely difficult. If you're a very shy person, you're not into things being in your face kind of thing, it can be really hard to navigate that kind of stuff. And equally, on the other side, you get a lot of people who will look down very much on an older person coming into a gay bar because, or an LGBT bar or whatever it is, because they they think, oh, you know, that dirty old man or whatever it may be. And it might be that they're just somebody who's been around for years and years and years. They're part of the community. They're coming in to have their pint and whatever, but they'll be looking at them thinking, oh, they're, they're a bit leery. They're a bit, you know, all the rest of it. So I personally don't think... There are exceptions, but I, I overall, I think the LGBT world isn't always as friendly as it could be. And, you know, I find it quite annoying in a way because everybody who comes through these processes in terms of accepting their sexuality has been through a hell of a lot. You know, can, can we not just expect a little bit of understanding? Do you know what I mean? A little bit of give and take in this world do you know what I mean and I think I think it's so the question we're asking is can we be nice to each other I think absolutely we can of course bisexual people suffer even more because we've got the whole issue of people just not accepting us generally but but I do think there's a lot of bisexual men I who I've well I've not known many but the ones I've spoken to in the past have said they often feel put off by the scene as it were because it's too in your face you know what I mean what do you what do you think uh Lewis 
Uh, it's a tough one, right? So, like, on the one hand, you could say these people that are in the community that will look down on you for your size or your age or your, your type or whatever, like, it's probably a tip of the iceberg and it's a good thing that you find out now or you have sex with them once and they don't call you back. If you're someone that was looking for a relationship, then probably better to just move on, I think. You know, it, you know, people are all at different stages as well. So what can sometimes seem like they're just being rude is just them being like, well, I want to do this, I want that. Or, you know, and I think if you're looking for a specific look of this chiseled Adonis guy, it's like, but you realise like that's, gonna change as that person gets older or you're gonna have to change partner so it's like it's it's for me i'm like it's a sh- you know <laughs> this is not me excusing their behavior but i'm like it's a shame that you feel that way um but it but it but it but it's it's easy for you and i and nikki to an extent to see it like that isn't it because we've we've found our comfort zone we've found our partners we've found the people we want to be with we've been through all the hassles and whatever but try saying that to somebody who's in their mid-twenties, who's only recently, well, even somebody older who's only just recently come out and is just navigating this world for the very first time, they're either going to get in there and sink or swim and and try their best and find the right people and all the rest of it and eventually, you know, manage to find, um, you know, happiness with different people, friends and all the rest of it. Or what they're going to do, and I think a lot of them do do this, is turn their back on it because they don't feel comfortable in that arena and therefore they end up lonely and it causes even more mental health problems. And I, I suspect there's a lot of bisexual men in particular, but also bisexual women who, who are in that situation. What do you think, Nikki? I just think that dating culture in general is pretty shallow and dating apps certainly don't help because they require us to pick between features of the person that we are seeking. And, you know, back in the heyday of dating online, i.e. the 90s, when people couldn't see each other and they used things like ICQ, remember that, and MSN Messenger to chat with each other across all corners of the world, they actually built up relationships from conversation online and they had connections made and then they would see pictures of each other. They didn't see the pictures first. And there's something to be said for that. So I don't think it's necessarily something that's just affecting LGBTQI people. It's obviously affecting straight people in droves too. And what we all need is to be a little bit less luckist, even though human beings innately make judgments about other people's looks. We need to stop, pause, think about how we want to connect to another human being and let that drive us. Yeah, I mean, I remember way, way back, um, we're talking about dating apps, I remember chat lines. And I remember a few times going on a chat line and uh, having long conversations, you know, on the chat line and then chatting properly afterwards on another, you know, on the telephone line and eventually meeting them. Sometimes, you know, it didn't live up to expectations. But the great thing about that was I actually got to know a fair few people who ended up becoming friends, even if I didn't end up dating them or having, or having sex with them or whatever. And I have several of them I'm still in touch with now. And that was through talking to them, hearing their voice. The voice really can work, can be a big thing, can't it, in terms of connecting with people and attractiveness and all the rest of it. So I found that I'd got things in common with them and all sorts of things, which I didn't, which which I don't think I'd get through the written word online um, and, and certainly not through the, you know, the use of sort of apps and, and, and things like that. What do you think to the, um, the whole thing of um, the TV series Naked, um, Naked Attraction? Because obviously that's all focused on uh, seeing you seeing the body bits body parts first and then the the, the the face and the voice and personality coming 
um, a bit later on. Funnily enough, I, I do watch it every now and again, and every time I watch it, I always guess who's going to end up with each other. It's bizarre. I must be, it must be in tune with how people think about physical things. But what's interesting is that is that nine times out of ten, they end up dating each other and not uh, staying in a relationship because you know they just don't get on with each other it really you know any relationship is a combination of things isn't it really what do you think to that uh, that show um, nikki i absolutely hate it i think i've watched about 5 minutes of it and um and i shouldn't hate it because i've watched all the sex and relationship programs on tv you know it's part of my work i've just got no time for it and it's just yeah it's just anathema to me it's all it's the antithesis of what you should be doing when you're looking for someone and I, again that's not me saying you shouldn't want someone who's got gorgeous blonde hair because that's what turns you on i just find that program so tacky and it's like love island you know if you base it on physical attraction alone you it doesn't it doesn't predict chemistry actually chemistry is a whole amalgamation of things and that's what you've got to be driven by to find the person that you want to be with Absolutely, but at the same time, the, the the thing about that show, and I agree with you in some extent. The thing about the show is there is an honesty about it, isn't there? In the sense that you know we can say all these wonderful things about having relationships and whatever. To a certain amount of the population, most people, to an extent, a lot of men actually, let's face it, they will the the instant thing that they're interested in a lot of the time is the physical attraction my view is that actually people can grow on you uh you might see somebody for you don't you find you don't you don't find attractive then a week later because of their personality you think actually you know i really do find them attractive or whatever and there are people who are equally as really really attractive the person you'd always go for and then you discover after about two minutes of meeting them you think i can't bloody stand them you know what i mean so there's lots of different things but i don't think we can get away lewis do you do you really think really from the fact that physical attractiveness is part of being a human being and i don't think we should deny that i honestly think it really comes down to who you are as a person so i like i would say for me i mean obviously bisexual <laughs> um but also like I, i've dated such a range of people and it's usually because there's been a click there's been a spark um you know to your point on naked attraction i couldn't have dated someone without like looking into their eyes and i think you can sense a lot about who people are from their face sometimes i know and that's not a shallow thing that's like sometimes i think people really wear who they are or maybe that's just my weird mind i've been like i can tell like you're someone that's always looking for the positive or, or whatever it is um i i don't know once you've had sex with someone really really attractive um you know it's done i you know you need more than just that and the thing is i think in my in my experience i've met people on different sides of that so I've I've I met I had a friend before we're not that close now but um he used to say he would never date anyone more attractive than him because he didn't want to be the less attractive one in the relationship so I've heard that I have a friend who he really had like just ridiculous standards he wanted a guy that looked like he just walked out of ancient Greece to have loads of money to have a great car to have a great apartment he is now late 30s and single and I'm just and he's never had a relationship so I like as much as I know you you like you made the good point Ash of like well we're in a relationship now it's easy for us to look back but I think if, what I would say to people that are in this situation dating I'd be like you know when you run into these people they're not happy you know they're, 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 this isn't a healthy thing to be pushing on people um so try and find someone that you know, makes you happy and is a happy whole person. And then if they they tick all your boxes for personality, sex, attraction, you know, great. Put a ring on it. 
Could we not benefit, though, Nikki? do you think, from trying, on the physical side I'm talking about, from trying to get more discussion about the attractiveness of different people, of different styles of people, different body types, different, do you know what I mean? Well, because I think sometimes everyone has this particular ideal of what things are. And let's face it, you know, it's not, there's no ideals. Everyone's, you know, it's beauty is the eye of the beholder, really, at the end of the day. Um, and we realize you realize that as you you know as you, you you date people and you get older and all the rest of it, um, but there is a there tends to be like let's take large women for example. There tends to be a tendency, doesn't there, to think that uh, anybody who's overweight isn't particularly attractive. Well, actually, in my opinion, there is a lot of large women who ooze um, you know sex appeal and all the rest of it. Loads of them, in fact. Um, should we be doing more to actually create a world where we see attractiveness in all sorts of different guises, as it were? Well, I've got to say that I think people younger than us are doing that. There is a real strong body positive movement now. You know, if you look at the cover of Cosmo, for example, they really have a range of body shapes of the celebrities and personas that they use on that magazine. And that's really changed in maybe the past 18 months, I would say. And there are all these models like Tess Halliday and there are just so many people that are not a typical slim model size that people find so sexy and are celebrating all over the world. Catwalk shows have started to diversify very slowly, but it is happening. And, you know, I think I think we are going to get there. I'm really optimistic about this, actually. And I think about when I was growing up in the 90s and, you know, Kate Moss, as gorgeous as she is, was our ideal of female beauty and, and an almost unobtainable ideal for most women. So, so slim, so, so chiselled, etc. you know, and she's still a beautiful woman now, but I just, I'm pleased that we've diversified the range of people that we find attractive. And I, I honestly am positive about it. So coming back to um, the overall research on, on this, obviously they covered all sorts of different things from, you know, body image to um, what people do in bed to status uh, to all sorts of things. Do you want to pick up on any of those other ones? You know, status is interesting, isn't it? Because I do get the impression sometimes that, um, certainly in the gay male world, actually, um, I think gay men, probably get loads of people attacking me for this, but I think gay men have, have, have discovered a certain, not everyone, but discovered a certain degree of status in recent years in certain areas, particularly in the media and various things like that, where they are taken more seriously. And I do think sometimes there is an expectation amongst certain gay men for everybody to be the same and everybody to be able to come up to their standards and to do really well and all the rest of it. And I, I, I detect that quite a bit amongst uh, the gay male um, community. So that's, that's an interesting um, area. But there may be some other areas. I mean, what do you think about that, Lewis? Do you think there is an, an expectancy to, to, to be doing well and to have a great job and all that kind of thing? So status is a really interesting one on the male side. And it's one of the things I really want to look into more because I remember there was this quote and it was like, if women are sex objects, then men are success objects. So I really wanted to dive into that and find out more about how much weight there was there. This idea that, you know, we might judge women by their looks, but men are judged by their cars and their job and what they can provide. I'm not sure how relevant it is in the modern world, um, but certainly maybe in times gone by. But you could argue with gay men, um, because that, you know, you're in arguably uncharted waters, I guess. You know, quite recently, it's very... Um, you know, it's new to, to, to be a man and not be defined by your, like, you know, I, I'm straight and I've got kids and blah, blah, blah. 
that maybe there is more of a pressure on gay men to show what they have, what their achievements are, because they're rejecting so much of what the standard culture does, if that makes sense. Um, that maybe that that there is a hyper there, like, well, I've got to, I've got to then have a good job, and you know, how what am I signaling to other people that they know I'm like a desirable person? So I, I guess if you follow that logic, you could maybe argue, you know, that there is this bigger thing on status. I've got to say that I think women don't barter over status the same way that men do, because we're not encouraged to compete with each other apart from for men in terms of looks. We're encouraged to be collaborative. And I think that when a woman meets a woman, social status is much less of an issue because we are actually used to being on the back foot often, earning less, having less certain rights in the world. So I think women don't, I don't think it affects women the same way. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I think you're probably right. And um, yeah, it's all about competition with men, isn't it? Rather than competition with other women. And one thing I will say, which is a horrible thing that's happened now in the LGBT movement and in the whole kind of gay male stuff is we add in social media, which, you know, is not something I like. And I do think there is this preachy element that's got into it that like now, because I have this many followers I say what happens in gay rights and I'm part of this history and, you know, I'm now part of the future and the movement. And it's it's very it's very negative. I really think we are seeing more people pushed away from the LGBT community now um, because the social media is there and people can kind of force their status on you a bit more. Like what what I say goes because more people hear it. Um, You know, I I think there's that element there as well that, you know, I have a friend who's um, in his 40s so he obviously has that kind of um memory of what it used to be like and he always paints as it was really nice and now it's just gone all horrible and he doesn't really consider himself part of the lgbt anymore he considers himself just a gay man because he thinks it's just become too negative and people are too too eager to jump down your throat and be actually harsher than you know homophobes are in some senses because they're 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 trying to be the gatekeepers in some way yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that's very much the, the way it is. It's become, the, the, yeah, people, they want to create this perfect world that's, you know, the world that everybody follows. And, and uh, I mean, that's the same, not just within sexuality. It's the same all over the place, isn't it? Everyone's sort of, I think the internet and, and technology is leading to that in a way, you know, trying everyone, it's this whole thing of everything being good or bad, black or white, everything being binary, isn't it? Which, of course, as we keep saying to everybody, we do not fit into any binary ideals at all, uh, being, being bisexual people. Um, so what about the other things? So there's status, there's body image we talked about, which is a, a problem. The, the, the sex side of things we've touched on in previous weeks, but I think that is an important thing that we still have this whole thing of everything's heteronormative, isn't it? It's all about really everybody sort of thinking in an hetero way when it comes to sex. I think that continues to be a problem for a, a lot of people. And if you're a um, a young or middle-aged or any age, really, a bisexual um, a man or woman navigating all this, uh, uh, you know, for the first time, that's going to be quite difficult and challenging, isn't it, and confusing in a way. So it's something which I think, um, you know, again, I think we need to... the the question is, can we be nice to each other? I think we can be. I think we can be a lot more understanding as to where people are because we're all at different points in our journey, aren't we? In, in this 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 whole uh, sexuality, everyone thinks of you know you start off in your youth and work up, but people are you know for some people coming out in their fifties is their youth, isn't it, Nikki? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's important to 
remember that there isn't a coming of age age for coming out the way that there is for, um, you know, 16 legal being allowed to have sex, 18 legal being allowed to drink, etc. So I think that is lost and it's lost on heterosexual people when they think about LGBTQI people because they, they presume that we have the same kinds of journey as they do in our sex lives. You know, the majority of people by 18 who are hetero are no longer virgins, but of LGBTQI people, I imagine it's actually probably at least half and half, if not less than that, you know? So I think we've got to consider that. And I think, I just, I completely agree with you, Ash, that we've got to try and be kinder to each other. And I've just got to say that I really wish that drag queens were quite kinder because I'm absolutely terrified of them. I don't think I've ever had a positive interaction with a drag queen, ever. <laughs> well, I was dragged on the stage once when it, there was a drag queen and a stripper at the same time, the drag queen was calling all the shots. And you can imagine, I was only 22 and it was very embarrassing. I never went back to that bar for a long time afterwards. <laughs> but no, you're right. And it, but the other the thing that I think bugs me more than anything is this exclusion of the lady, uh, Dr. Kirsty Clark was talking about it, um, the exclusion of diversity. The fact that we're, you know, we've all struggled for the acceptance to be diverse and different and yet as a community, and I'm not saying bisexual people or gay people, I'm talking about everybody collectively, as a community, generally when it comes together, um, it doesn't like diversity. It wants everybody to be in set boxes and things and to be done, do do things the same way. And I, I think that is, um, I, think it's, I think it's not just disappointing. I think it's actually quite shocking because you're not just talking about uh, people who are new to it. Um, there's a lot of people who are like this who are very established within the um you know the 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 um the lgbt world who act like that yeah it's a tough one right and you know being not only biracial and bisexual i kind of like see it in different places and i've got to be honest and this might sound really bad but i think there is some truth to the fact that you know minorities can be more drawn to prejudice i think because I think there's something to be said for, well, I've been picked on for this, so who am I going to pick on? Now, that's not everyone's mentality, but I think that there is enough of that in a lot of minorities um, that, that it's definitely a factor of this kind of like, well, if I look down on these people, then at least I'm not as low as those people, and then, then, I'm, then I'm a bit better, if that makes sense. It does, yeah, it does, it does. It's a, and it's a horrible thing for us to confront, isn't it, really? Because... You don't want to think that you're like that. And I think there's an element of that in everybody in minor, in a minority, actually, to an extent. And that's probably why a lot of bisexual people suffer because of the fact that, you know, a lot of gay men in particular feel like that um, with regards to bisexual men. But then again, I'm, I suppose some of us, you know, I don't, can't think of anything specifically. I'll probably think about it later, but I'm sure there's moments when I've thought, oh, they're, they're, they're not as good as me or they're not as, you know what I mean? What about you, Nikki? Have you... Have you experienced that? Or have you felt it yourself? Yeah, I just think the desire to belong is so deeply human. And that if you start from the position of being an outsider, you will spend a lot of your life trying to be accepted. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we'll end then, <laughs> going full circle, right back to the beginning about, you know, there's this whole thing in the gay world of different types, isn't there? Um, what kind of type have you been Nikki what what you know if, if you know when they, when they look at these things and they decide oh you know you go into a bar or whatever it may be and uh people are judgmental about what type of person they want to go with or whatever what what have you you know what, what are you categorized as 
<laughs> I am categorised as hyperfem, and there's nothing I can do to, to shift that. To the extent that hyperfem also raises lots of questions about just how bi I am to people. So it's a really dangerous, precarious category to be in. Really? They've actually questioned that. It's weird, isn't it? Because for, I mean, again, I'm being stereotyping here, but you would have thought for a lot of uh, gay women, somebody who is hyper femme or, you know, very, very feminine, uh, all the rest of it would be an ideal in a way kind of thing. But then that's a contradiction i suppose i don't know it's it, it weird they just they just worry that you are still making too much of an impression for men and that you are too heteronormative and then therefore that becomes something undesirable so what could you do if you were still out and about trying to date women what would you have to do to change that just little things just put like less makeup on um less kinds of provocative or tight clothing um, probably let my armpit hair grow, which is a bit like to shave or not to shave. It sounds really stupid, but it's like a big thing. Pubic hair is the same. There's like, I like to be super groomed, super stripped back, like loads of makeup. That I'm Northern. So that's why I, that's why I, I am what I am. That's why I'm hyper femme. Um, but I do think it is slightly changing with people like Megan Barton Hansen, my favourite, who's got her own sex podcast now where she talks loads about being bi and dating other, uh, bi women. And they are all, you know, she was on Love Island and she, you know, she loves that super tanned hyper femme look. So it's starting to shift gradually. I would hope that if you did go back into, uh, you know, I know you're in a monogamous relationship at the moment, um, although we'll talk about that in the future, I'm sure, about all those kind of things. But, um, I, you know, I'd hope that um, that you wouldn't try and conform to all those things, would you, Nikki? Well, I hope not. I, not at this age. I'm too old. I know who I am and I know what I like and that's the end of it, basically. And there's no sign of Botox. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's very not... discreetly done, that's why. <laughs> um, Lewis, what, what about you? What were you considered uh, when you first went, you know, went into a, a gay bar or whatever and what would you be considered now? So I started out and I was a twink. Then I like embraced my facial hair because I always used to shave. And then I became what is known as an otter. And now I'm a, I'm a daddy, which is apparently the most attractive of all of them because it's very like hetero-y. So they love, I'd be a success now if I went back to being single in the gay world. So what's an otter? Because there's, there's cubs and bears. What, what, what does it all mean? I, I, I don't really know. I think an otter is just like an older twink that's matured and filled out a little bit. So you've got muscle and you've got hair. You're not like, you know, completely like just it's a tiny little thing like a twink <laughs> like a twig <laughs> yeah yeah i think i went from being a yeah i went from being a twink when in my younger years my 20s i'd probably be considered a bear now in fact i'd probably definitely be considered a daddy wouldn't i um but uh, you of course are a daddy in reality um <laughs> well there we go <laughs> <laughs> fabulous great um lovely discussion as always if anybody wants to get in touch with us please do so we'd love to hear your views on this in particular um i know it's a you know very difficult world to navigate at times and uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts okay well that's bisexual brunch for this week if you've got any comments thoughts musings do get in touch with us at at bisexual brunch on twitter and thank you for listening and we'll see you later bye for now
I want to say that it is a tough LGBT world out there, but we just have to focus on empowering people. We can't always rely on other people to be nice. So know your value, know your worth, find other like-minded people that will egg you on and cheer you on. And if we can be some small, small part of that on Bisexual Brunch, then we are happy to do it. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah, fantastic. This program is an MIM production. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.